Welcome to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing app businesses. We sit down with the entrepreneurs, investors, and builders behind the most successful apps in the world to learn from their successes and failures. Subclub is brought to you by RevenueCat. Thousands of the world's best apps trust RevenueCat to power in-app purchases, manage customers, and grow revenue across iOS, Android, and the web. You can learn more at RevenueCat.com. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Bernard, and my guest today is Brennan Clark, Director of Product at Sago Mini. With three subscription apps for preschoolers, a recently launched show on Apple TV+, and even a physical subscription box, Sago Mini has seen over 100 million downloads, but is also engaging kids and parents beyond the core app experience. On the podcast, I talk with Brennan about the challenge of building and growing kids' apps in 2022, how to make effective decisions with minimal data, and why AppsFlyer had to build Saga Mini, a custom SDK. Hey, Brennan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm a, I'm a fan of the show. Looking forward to chatting. Thanks. Yeah, so I've been wanting to have you on for a while you gave a fantastic talk at the last conference I went to before uh, COVID. And the reason I wanted to have you on is that building a kid's app in 2022 is hard. <laughs> there are so many different considerations. And unless you've built a kid's app, you don't really understand it. Uh, so I wanted to just kick things off asking for just an overview of all the different things you have to think about building a kid's app in 2022. Yeah. So the first thing is you're really building the product for two different user groups. Um, so you have the actual user, the player, that's the kid. Uh, but then you actually have the parent who pays for the product. Um, so you're at the same time designing a product that has, has to fit these two user groups. Um, and there are very specific considerations that you have to, to think about when you're building this product. Uh, the UX, you know, just making sure that the parent and the kid uh, whoever's at the helm of the device, they can get to whatever they need to do as quickly as possible. Um, so there's the whole kind of user experience design aspect to it. Uh, then there's the top of funnel. Um, a lot of developers thought they had it uh, pretty tough when iOS 14 dropped. <laughs> <laughs> they should see what the kids app space looks like right now. Um, yeah. Not only did we get everything that all the other developers got, uh, but we actually can't use the ATT prompt. Uh, and what is Google's model, uh, their attribution model based on the ATT prompt and the opt-in. Right. Um, so you don't get any Google UAC, you don't get a lot of Facebook ads. When iOS 14 dropped, um, we were really cut off from most of the major ad platforms. Um, so that's thrown another wrench uh, into you know, all our top of funnel. Um, yep. There's a lot of data privacy considerations. Um, so how you collect data, what you can do with it. Uh, so there are a lot of fun challenges within the kids app space um, <laughs> that uh, a lot of people don't know about and a lot of people don't, uh, don't consider when building uh, most subscription apps. That was a fantastic overview. So now we get to dive deep into <laughs> this, these topics and more. Um, hopefully we can get through. Uh, there's just so much I wanted to ask you about. So hopefully we can get through it all. But let, let's kick it off going deep on the complexities of the user experience when you have the child experiencing the app and the parent 
paying for the app. And, w- and one of the more interesting things to me, I've got kids. We were just talking about this uh, before we hit record. I've got a four-year-old, an eight-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 13-year-old. And so I've, I've you know, been through it early in the, you know, tw- 2009, my first son was born. And so I've, they've kind of grown up around this and I've, you know, figured things out as a parent since 2009 about all the, the different ways kids interact with technology. And when a kid is three, four years old and doesn't read yet, <laughs> how do you design a UI? And then, you know, how do you design that UI to also, you know, work for the parents so they understand what they need to do and how to get the kids set up and the entire user experience is just such a different discipline. And, and and there's not a lot of people talking about this on podcasts and blog posts. You know, how do you approach designing a product for people who don't read <laughs> while also having to convince somebody to pay for it who does read, but it's not the person actually using the app? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an easy challenge. There's no magical thing to think about. Um, I, I would say like some of the considerations, one, for example, is like kids do not understand abstract concepts. So abstract icons. So you actually have to be very literal in a lot of the design. Um, and so we have a lot yeah. of very smart play designers, you know, designers, developers on our team that have been in the industry for a long time. It is moderately similar to, you know, TV programs, um, physical toys. We do model a lot of our, our games actually around physical toys. So it's a digital, we call them digital toys actually. Um, so we take a lot of inspiration from that physical world, but yeah, it's again, for kids that don't read, you cannot have any text. Um, a nice positive of that is that our apps actually translate very well internationally because there is no text throughout the experience. So a three-year-old kid, uh, in Canada and a three-year-old kid, uh, you know, somewhere in Europe or Asia, uh, they really all just need the same experience. There, there are not too many different considerations when you think about localizing these products. Um, so that's a, a positive byproduct of it. But, but I imagine you still have to deal with localization is such a mess. I mean, any, anybody it in is. this industry who's dealt with it, it, it just has nightmares about it. Yeah. I mean, I tried localizing one of my apps and uh, every little update you make, you need to go back through the process and managing all the strings and then yeah. making sure it's actually like, Trans- localize well, but that's cool. So the main experience doesn't have to be localized generally, exactly. yeah. which is something I never considered. No, exactly. So a lot of like our store or account screens, they need to be localized, but the actual gameplay, there is no text in any of our gameplay, uh, which is fantastic when you're talking about, you know, localization and going international. So from the kid experience, um, you know, that's at Sego Mini, that's really what drives most of our design is like we're a kid first experience, kid led experience. They're in the driver's seat uh, when we're thinking about designing a product. And this doesn't happen too often, but, but if we have to choose between kid experience and parent experience, we will always, always choose that kid experience. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the main focuses for us. Uh, then when you're thinking about the kind of parent interaction or parent retention, uh, we've worked on this more in the past, say, three years uh, we've, we've built a couple of features like the account system. Um, so we actually didn't have an account system for, I want to say two and a half years with Sego mini world, which is kind of our first flagship subscription product. Um, so we had about a hundred thousand active subscribers before we even implemented an account system, wow. which is crazy to think about. Um, but I think it's good perspective when you're thinking about designing for a kid versus a parent is that right. when you're, you're building these kids apps, 
if your product is really engaging and really useful for the kid, uh, the parent is naturally going to be retained uh, and isn't go going to stay subscribed to the product because uh, they see what's what's you know how their kid is engaging with the product uh, and what it's doing for their kid. But so recently, we we have made further investments in the account system in our CRM base. Uh, one of the major needs from that was actually launching new subscription products. Um, so the cross sell, uh, a lot of promotion from one product to another. Uh, obviously, the CRM base becomes pretty crucial for that and having that conversation with the parents. Uh, and then another thing that we did was we launched a parent app as well. Um, so we have a, an accompanying app uh, that goes alongside most of our major products. Uh, and when their kid, you know, is, is drawing something, uh, doing a coloring sheet in one of our apps, um, there are artifacts that are actually sent to the parent app. Uh, and so that's kind of this nice touch point that reminds the parents of the value uh, that their kids are getting in our apps. Um, so we've we've built on that relationship with the parents over the years. Um, but again, it's really the kid experience that that drives the growth. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I, I actually didn't realize y'all had launched a parent app. That's a that's a really great way to 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 balance that to to like create this great parent experience because ultimately, you know, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit. It's you need to retain two people, which retention is the hardest thing in yeah. subscription app businesses, consumer subscriptions generally. You know, compared to SaaS especially, is that consumers just churn. And then now you have a kid who could churn if they're not enjoying the experience. And then you have a parent who can churn if they don't understand the, the value that the kids are getting out of it. And, and that brings me to another question I wanted to ask is that how, how do you balance what parents want, which, you know, I'm a, I'm a parent when I think about my kids screen time, I mean, you know, they get more screen time than I want, you know, I'm always thinking about limiting screen time, but then there are certain apps and experiences where, where I am less restrictive with them mm -hmm. when it's educational, when I think it's productive, even Minecraft, like when, when I see my kids doing like really creative things in Minecraft, it's kind of like a modern version of Legos where they get to be super creative. And so Sago Mini, you know, has some kind of educational components some creativity components, but how do you balance kind of keeping the kids engaged in that, in that play, but then also like reminding the parents that, Hey, this is that, that you want your kids to continue. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a good question. I, in theory, you're doing both at the same time and that's, you know, the perfect world, but right. it's really like we've staked our claim in this high quality interactive content. Um, and that's really just our competitive advantage. Um, so we have, you know, we invest a lot in, in creating the best content for kids as possible, uh, making sure it's interactive. It's not, you know, this passive kind of YouTube kid style uh, of content. Uh, and that's been a really big thing. Uh, parents love that. Parents trust that. Uh, and then again, actually, subscriptions have unlocked a bit of additional trust in that there is no sneaky stuff. We're not doing in-app ads. We're not doing a bunch of IEPs, gems, all this type of stuff. We have a single subscription price. Parents can lock that in or just enjoy the free experience. Um, and having that kind of safe, trusted environment for their kid is another really big selling point for parents. Um, and so those two things... I think they're positive for the kids as well. So when you're designing for the kids with, you know, being safe and trusted in mind and with, you know, the high quality, uh, really interactive content, you can do both of those things and build those into, uh, you know, your game design. Uh, and those really appeal to both the parents and to the kids. 
and you don't sacrifice, you know, engaging content uh, when you're considering those two things as well. Um, so yeah. it's really about massaging some of those really important things that, you know, are, are really just values at the company, um, massaging those into our really engaging experiences. What, what is the Saga Mini pitch to parents? Like, how do, you, how do you as a company think, like, this is our message to parents? The educational, creative, or is there, is there kind of a specific or, or even a kind of mission or, or statement that Saga Mini has as their perspective toward parents? Yeah, so when it comes to parents, the, the pitch is a little bit different. So we have two kind of flagship subscription products. One is Sego Mini World, which is more on the entertainment side of things. Uh, and then we have Sego Mini School, which is more on the quote-unquote educational side of things. Our overarching mission is really to just provide the best um, you know, digital toys, digital products for preschoolers as possible. The educational side of things, uh, we believe in really a kid-led learning experience. Um, and that's something that's, that's pretty unique in the market. It's not, you know, we're not telling the parent, you're going to do X, Y, and Z in math. Your kid's going to learn X, Y, Z in math. We're letting the kid explore a bunch of different avenues of learning. Um, so math, you know, creativity, uh, STEM, their, you know, social-emotional learning. There are a variety of ways that we're, we're teaching kids uh, in a very engaging way in Sago Mini School. Uh, and then Sego Mini World is really just the best digital, you know, playground in the world. Uh, and so it's this safe environment where if you hand your tablet off to your kid, you know that your kid is going to have a great time in a very safe, you know, trusted environment. Uh, and you have nothing to worry about. And your kid's going to sit there and be laughing and having fun um, right. for, for Lord knows how long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I, I imagine, you know, part of that pitch is is also that safety aspect, you know, I do let my kids use YouTube, but I check the history and I talk to them about it. And it, now I'm not working with preschoolers, but I mean, I've seen preschoolers just, just, you know, clicking buttons in YouTube and going through random uh, videos and like letting the YouTube algorithm guide them. And that's scary. <laughs> I mean, it is. So I imagine that that kind of safe, entertaining environment is kind of part of the pitch in juxtaposition from this kind of free for all that is the web and apps and digital generally. Absolutely. I think like looking at the overall landscape, you have, you know, what 15,000, 20,000 kids app in the app, apps in the app store. A lot of them are not of great quality. Um, right. And then within some of those apps, you do have some of that content that can be questionable. And I know YouTube kids gets picked on a little bit and sometimes it's, you know, rightfully so uh, right. because there is a lot of content that is, is fringe, you know, it shouldn't really be on YouTube kids. It's very right. passive. You do see, you know, we see parents talking about, you know, the screen zombies. It, it really impacts the kid when they get in that mode. Um, yeah. And so it is a very much a competitive advantage is making sure that we have this high quality screen time, you know, that's interactive. Uh, your kid is learning, your kid is exploring um, and actually engaging with that experience that they're in. That's fantastic. Another thing I, I wanted to talk through, and I, I know this is a, a, a huge can of worms that we could probably talk a couple hours on this, but how, how does Saga Mini think about um, the privacy and data management? So we're talking about, you know, kids' experience and parents' experience, but you're very limited in what data you can collect and how you can collect it and where you store it. And so how, how do you... One, you know, how do you just build without 
the kind of data that most subscription apps are used to. And then I'd also like to explore kind of what you can and can't collect. Yeah. So this, I mean, this is a, a loaded question that uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to just scratch the surface here. Yeah. So overall, like I would say, first off, a lot of this is very important. Like kids' data management is, yeah. is a really important topic. Um, and we rightfully should be regulated quite a bit. I think one thing to consider is that there are a lot of alternatives or unique ways that you can use. Um, for example, Apple has the IDFV. That's one thing that really helps out uh, for, you know, data management uh, for it's, you know, device specific, but it's not identifiable across platforms, across channels. So you can right. use that as a connective tissue for a lot of the uh, data management where you don't have personally identifiable data. Uh, you just have something like the IDFE that gets cleared. That's something that's really important in building a lot of the infrastructure. Um, so getting creative in how you're using that data um, while, of course, being very cognizant of, of the personally identifiable data. What else? There's so we can't use the IDFV. That's uh, of course I, I mentioned that the uh, the ATT prompt. We can't use that at all. Um, that's you know it's the way it is. It, it hurts us with our paid UA, but um, right. that's what happens. Um, another piece of, uh, of of advice that I would give is to find partners that are willing to get creative with you and, and to really partner with you in helping solve challenges for the kids industry. Um, because there are a lot of larger companies or a lot of partners that, you know, they just won't invest the time in building solutions for kids apps. Right. And then you get really, you know, you get cornered and you can't really do much with their products. Um, I always tell the story of AppsFlyer. It's, this is not a paid plug, but AppsFlyer, <laughs> when iOS 14 dropped, um, we were in a panic because we couldn't use that ATT prompt. The AppsFlyer SDK actually did not work and it did not pass Apple's regulations. Um, and so we had, I want to say for three weeks, we had like 20 people at AppsFlyer building us a brand new version of their SDK that was custom wow. fit for Sego Mini. Um, and I think they rolled that out to the kids app industry in general after. But having a partner that is really just able to kind of invest in you and help solve some of these challenges, that was an eye-opening moment for me of like, there are not many partners that are willing to do something like that. Uh, yeah. But it's important to find the ones that are because they really, really help you out over the long run. Yeah. We, we've had a lot of uh, kids ops come to us at Revenue Cat, and it's been interesting how I think a lot of people initially think they can't even use Revenue Cat yeah. because of the data issues. Mm -hmm. um, and then when, once they realize it, then there's just a ton of questions about mm -hmm. you know, what data we collect. And, and of course, and the, the fun thing for us is like we actually built a platform to be very minimally, we collect almost no data unless the developer collects the data. So like we don't by default collect email or, you know, any demographic information. We don't even save the, the IP address. We use it to determine what country they're in, which is not personally identifiable. And then we discard the, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, IP address. And so we, we kind of, I always viewed it as like, we built this like clean pipe <laughs> yeah. and then, and then, you know, for, for non-kids app developers, they can layer on as much data as they want based on whatever regulations they have to abide by. Uh, and then with kids apps, they can just kind of use that clean pipe and not have to worry about superfluous data collection, things like that. So yeah, I've, I've actually talked to quite a few kids apps over the years and it's, 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 it's interesting how, well, <laughs> I was going to say paranoid, but maybe, maybe that is appropriate. <laughs> is that, you know, when, when you're a heavily regulated industry, 
you have to be very careful of who you work with because there's there are a lot of companies that just by default collect way more data than they need to. And then as a as a kids app, you don't even realize. I mean, I've dealt with this yeah. personally. So like in my weather app, you know, we're actually removing the ad SDKs. And and mm-hmm. the, the thing I've always hated about these ad SDKs is I have a weather app, so it requires precise data location to I mean, precise uh, physical location to provide the weather data accurate to your location. And I've always been a bit nervous or, or just yeah. not knowing with this massive sprawling closed source SDK, are they collecting location data? Even though I, I know I checked one box that said, I don't want location-based ads, but is there some other checkbox deep within this SDK setting somewhere that I forgot to check? And now they're just sucking up all my user data. And it's a closed source SDK. So you you know it's you don't even know what they're collecting or not collecting. So the partner angle and like understanding who you're working with and what data they collect and getting transparency there, I imagine is is huge. Yeah, and it's it's absolutely right. It's I mean, a lot of people that have been in the industry have been burned by partners in the past right. um, of of data collection that's hasn't been said in in any of the documentation or anything. Um, so I think rightfully so there, there is a lot of skepticism when working with new partners. Um, and you do see that across a lot of companies that they approach these partnerships as, oh, we probably can't use you, but let's explore it a little bit, right. um, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, is an interesting angle. It's a tough angle for the other person on the call. <laughs> right. Um, but, um, but yeah, again, like we don't have, we've never had any of the ad SDKs in our, we have never yeah, had, it's, it's a very yeah. skinned version of AppSlyer and that's it. Um, yeah. and so it's, it is tough. You're, you're working with a very limited amount of partners that you can, you can work with. Um, right. and again, as I mentioned, really choose those partners carefully, um, because there will be instances where, you know, specific custom products are, are really important for you as a, as a business. How, how do you approach user experience data collection? Are you able to use a amplitude or a mix panel type solution or did you yeah. build something in house? So we do have a mix panel. Um, but again, it's, it's a, a very stripped down version. So no IP right. addresses, we use the IDFE. So no, there's no IDFA or there's no account ID in that mix right. panel implementation. So again, you're, you're building custom solutions for the kid space and almost anything that you use um, to yeah. really limit the data collection as much as possible. Um, and so it does bring up these challenges of like, you have a parent that might subscribe in their iPhone, for example, but the kid's tablet is a Samsung. You right. cannot track those across platforms like that because you're using the IDFE. Um, so there are issues that arise with this implementation, but again, it's necessary and you get say 90%, 95% of the picture um, right. which is, it's good enough for us. We wish we could get a hundred percent, but we'll take 90. Yeah. 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 And, and then how, how do you approach product development in combination? And th- this is kind of moving on from the data discussion and more to, so you do collect some data and some usage analytics, but how do you balance that data against kind of user testing? And in, I don't know if y'all do any kind of in-person testing with kids, yep. but I imagine with kids, it's like they're probably just tapping all over the screen and yeah. like hitting the wrong buttons. And like, you know, even with data, I imagine that there's a huge kind of 
blend of, of usability testing in addition to kind of collecting some of this data? Mm-hmm. How, how do you approach that in your product design and user experience design? So really both of those feed a lot of what we're building. We have a lot of user testing. We have kids coming in really every week um, into the office, play testing uh, you so know, cool. new apps, new toys. One of the best parts of the job is just hearing the kids running around screaming. It's like, <laughs> puts all your problems <laughs> into perspective, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's such a nice environment. The So there's the user testing. A lot of that is either, you know, testing the current experience as a, a full flow or a lot of the new games that we're developing will go through a lot of, of user testing. The data, like the quantitative piece is really important feeding, you know, a lot of our strategy in terms of retention, in terms of feature usage. But I think it has to be a, bit, a mix of both. Um, and one example I would give on this is we had, uh, within some of our games, we had a, a face icon that was taking user or taking kids to a character creator um, so they could jump from the game to the character creator and back. But what we recently found out is that the younger kids, like the, you know, the three-year-olds, two or three-year-olds, they were using that as a way to try to get back to the main menu. Uh, but because yeah. it was an abstract icon of a face, they didn't really know what it was. They were just clicking on that button and like, we're, we thought that feature was so popular, but then we did some user testing and we're like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're just trying to get back to the main menu. We need to fix this. Um, right. So there are instances like that where data can inform a lot of the decisions, but it does typically need to be backed up by some sort of user testing or um, because a lot of it is unpre- unpredictable. And, you know, our play designers, I will give them full credit, and UX designers is like getting yourself in the mind of a kid is really tough to do, but it's so important in how we're designing a lot of these features because they're not always as rational as we'd like to think they are. Um, so we have to design accordingly. <laughs> That's so fun. <laughs> and and um, so Sega Mini is based in Toronto, right? It is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's so cool that you bring kids into the office. It just recently got back. We had pretty bad uh, restrictions. Like they were pretty strict uh, COVID restrictions. So we actually right. just got the kids back um, in the office this summer, which was such a delightful experience after a couple of years off. Yeah. I have kids popping into my office all the yeah. time, but <laughs> <laughs> it's my home office. Yeah. <laughs> a little different, but similar experience. I hear kids yelling and running yeah. through the halls. <laughs> uh, that is a delightful aspect of getting to work from home. Back to the data piece, I, I did want to dive into the into paid ads because I know that's kind of a huge, another just huge thorny, sticky topic. But let's let's just give people a, a little bit of insight into what that's like. So tell me about what what you can and can't do. I mean, you know, I'll ask some follow up questions there. But as a kids app, what can where can you advertise and what data can you collect? Uh, so not a lot is the, is the short answer. We yeah. <laughs> so we we can't use the IDFA under any circumstance and so no ATT prompt. Uh, in six days, we're going to lose the Google ad ID, uh, which will be another fun experience on the Google side of things. There was a bit more planning on the Google side. So it sounds like there won't be as massive of a a disruption, which I mean, fingers crossed we're six days away, but, um, so it, (laughs) it does make it tough and it, it really is a platform, like an ad platform by platform, uh, decision of whether they can support us, uh, because we're, we're going with a, a SCAD network implementation only. Um, so we don't have right. that ATT prompt. We don't have, you know, the full attribution, uh, which means that the ad networks that we work with have to support a full SK ad network implementation for, for iOS. Um, so you do yeah. have some networks like, you know, Unity ads, 
uh, Iron Source, uh, AppLovin. You know, some of these networks are able to support this, which is great. So we didn't lose everything. Uh, but some of the major SRNs, uh, you know, the Facebooks, Googles, uh, we really can't do much with them because there's no app install attribution uh, because they can't feed all the SKAD network data as the only source of data for them. Right. Um, so that's a, it's a major hurdle. We don't really have much purchase data or event data because, uh, again, you can't have this identifiable data of, of what kids are doing in the app sent right. back to the ad platforms. Um, so you're missing that piece as well. Uh, so there's a lot of work that actually goes into the LTV modeling after install because it's so important and we can't feed that data back. Um, and so we really need to do a lot of this LTV modeling on the back end um, internally. Right. Um, so we are working with a lot of constraints there. It also means that retention is even that much more important because the top of funnel is, is it has gone down since iOS 14. Um, and I, I don't really see an end to it. I was optimistic for about a year there and then <laughs> slowly became more jaded and jaded. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so retention is again, even more important now. Uh, and just getting creative with, with top of funnel because we lost those channels. Um, so figuring out, you know, we use our, our back catalog of apps now as a, a major lead generation tool for Sego Mini World. Um, right. So that drove about a million installs this past year. So that's been a nice supplement to a lot of uh, what we're doing on the paid UA side of things. Uh, and then, you know, CRM again, because we have multiple products now, the, you know, first party, first party data, first party cross promotion, um, that's become much more important in the overall acquisition strategy. Broadly, how, how do you think about measurement? So when you're spending on App11 and Unity and these places that do support SK Ad Network, that's a pretty coarse yeah. uh, data you're getting back. Hopefully with, with 4.0, there'll be a, a, little more, uh, a little more data coming back, a little more insight. Yeah. Um, but you know, broadly, does it feel like you've really stepped back into the, you know, 50% of our ads are effective. We don't know which 50%. <laughs> yes and no. Yeah. More yes. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, uh, with, like with the SK ad network implementation, like we have some of the events that are sent back, obviously an anonymized. One of the, for better, or for worse, like an interesting stat in the kids industry that we're, we see is that about 80% of the purchases are actually made in the first two days. Um, so you have this very narrow window uh, where you have the parents' attention and you have the kids' attention. And most right. of the sales, most of the purchases are made in those first 48 hours, uh, yeah. which helps for SK Ad Network, of course. Um, so we do get pretty solid data of, you know, those first 48 hours, how many purchases, what's our conversion rate. Um, then it's our job on the back end to model that out. And, you know, unfortunately we, haven't or we are we are unable to split between paid and organic on the retention side of things um right. but so we have all our different cohorts you know geo platform uh all this um so we cohort those out build ltv models that are that are updated pretty frequently um and then feed that back into uh what we're doing on the paid ua side of things uh but again unfortunately this is a very manual process so you have to yeah. go on the back end be looking through a tableau or a google sheets and figure out, okay, this is our C LTV over CPA, projected LTV over CPA, and then make right. those changes on the platforms. It's not all there on a single platform for you to figure out. Yeah. Wow. A lot, lot of work. Yep, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to our growth team, man. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and then at a high level, do you target the ads more at kids or parents or a blend? Or how do y'all think about 
the ad targeting and even kind of creative targeting? Mm-hmm. It's a bit of both. Um, I would, it, it differs by product as well. So Sega Mini World, where it's really more on the entertainment side of things, those are much it's easier to get the kid excited about that because it's just this really fun, engaging experience. You see an ad, like a, a gameplay trailer for Sega Mini World, the kid is going to love it. Um, right. Now on Sega Mini School, where you have more of the educational component to it, you do need much more upfront buy-in from the parents. Um, and so those ads are, are geared more towards parents and we're actually further indexing towards parents for Sega Mini School. Um, it's been a kind of slow shift uh, more towards the, the parent marketing there. Um, yeah. I, think, I, I think we see that continuing. Do you see a split in, in where the ads are more successful as far as platform-wise? So, so like you were talking about advertising on Unity ads <laughs> and IronSource and AppLoving. So those are mostly game advertising, which would mean... For a kid to see them, that means they they have to be in a you know free to play game mm-hmm. um, where they're probably just being bombarded with ads and and yeah. I mean I guess is it kind of missionary work like you're kind of pulling kids out of these kind of more manipulative experiences <laughs> into Sega Mini come but, to the bright but, side yeah <laughs> yeah but it's I mean do you see a, a significant volume of 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 kids actually coming from those other free gaming experiences? We do a surprising amount. Um, there, there are some pretty good apps that are free to play uh, in terms of like how close they are in terms of experience, in terms of age demographic. Um, so those placements typically do quite well. And we have seen um, some good success over the years. I would say that's, that's more on the iOS side of things than the Google play side of things. Um, so right. these placements really work on the iOS side of things. Um, we haven't had as much success with the Google Play side, um, and I would say especially for the educational product, Sega Mini School. Right. Um, so we, we have had to kind of niche in to uh, more of that iOS side of things. And then even though you can't get data on it, do you run YouTube uh, videos, video ads? We're not major advertisers on, on YouTube. Um, yeah. again, YouTube kids is uh, ad free. Um, yeah. so we do, I think we've, we've played around with some, uh, kind of brand campaigns on YouTube towards parents. Um, but not at, not at any major scale at this point. Yeah. As we were talking earlier, I mean, <laughs> you know, kids are on YouTube and they're on, they're on the full version of YouTube. Yeah. I mean, no, it's you know, true. it's, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> what kids are exposed to these days. Yeah. Um, so, so it is really cool um, that, that y'all are building these kind of safe places for them to be. I want to move on and talk about all the different channels where Sega Mini has apps. So you have the App Store and Play Store, obviously, but also the Amazon App Store, the web. So I wanted to kind of go kind of platform by platform and talk about the the unique considerations for each app on those platform Kicking it off, obviously, um, you know, App Store is kind of the the the, the eight hundred pound gorilla mm-hmm. in the app space, and then even with with kids. Um, and I was curious if there's kind of any. I mean, we've we've talked through ATT and the privacy regulations and all those kind of things, but but big picture, are there any kind of special considerations that you think about on iOS? Um, and then one thing specifically is Apple Arcade. You know, as a, as a parent, my kids actually use Apple Arcade. And I kind of push my kids towards experiences on Apple Arcade because it, it's free. We have the, bun- the Apple One bundle um, with iCloud storage and all that st- music and, and 
TV and whatever all they bundle now. <laughs> um, but just, you know, to me as a parent, you know, I, I do kind of trust that being kind of a safe place where they're not going to get bombarded with ads. They're not going to be, you know, manipulated into begging us to purchase gems or whatever. So, you know, as a parent, that's, that's kind of more the direction I push my kids on, on the app store. Uh, so, so broadly on the app store, uh, what are those kind of considerations and, and have you seen an impact with a- Apple Arcade? We haven't personally seen much of an impact with, with Apple Arcade. Um, I think one of the major reasons for that is that the amount of content for preschoolers on Apple Arcade is, is pretty insignificant or pretty small at this okay. point in time. Um, so we don't see too many preschoolers moving over to Apple Arcade. Um, the one thing I would say about it is that I think they've taken a really great approach that's very similar to, to what we do in that they're really investing in high-quality content, so it's highly curated um, you yeah. don't have every app in the app store in Apple Arcade. It's a very highly curated, um, safe space. And I think those values very much align with what we do. Um, I, over the years, Apple has been a, a fantastic partner for us, um, both with featuring. Uh, and then we also actually just launched our first Apple TV Plus show, um, Sega Money oh, Friends. Cool. And so that's just an, you know, an extension of the partnership that we've had with Apple over the years. Um, and again, I think it's Apple recognizing the values that we have and that we share with them in terms of high quality content, safe content for kids. Um, and so that they've really been a, a strong partner for us over the years. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. In terms of the other, the other platforms, um, you know, Apple drives about 80% of our revenue. And I think that's pretty common across the yeah. board in the, in the industry. E- even in sp- subscription apps broadly, yeah. just the app apps, across the entire app industry. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's about that 80%. Sometimes maybe pushing down to 60, 60 to 80%, but yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's pretty typical. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the one that I would call out is, is Amazon, the kids plus uh, subscription. That's, I think that's hurt some of the developers and that it's bundled pretty frequently with, with some of their um, kind of cheaper products. So the fire, uh, the fire products that are specifically designed for kids, but we'll also have that kids plus subscription. Um, yeah. that's been one that I think it's actually disincentivized a lot of developers to build for the Amazon platform. Mm. Um, so that's one kind of repercussion of that. Uh, but it is, again, you know, they have a lot of apps and a lot of content in that kids plus subscription. Um, and a lot right. of families are, are fine with that subscription as kind of the main source for, for their kid entertainment. Yeah. So that, so in contrast to Apple arcade, that has been a bigger, uh, shift yeah. for Saga Mini and, and that whole platform? Yeah, I think naturally it's a it's a smaller channel to start with. And so to have right. that additional impact layered on um, just means that a lot of developers, ourselves included, um, have, you know, uh, reduced our investment a bit in Amazon. Yeah. So we're, we're at Revenue Cat. We're actually rolling out support for the Amazon App Store and it's been a really interesting journey for us. Yes. <laughs> um, and it is it's a it's just a challenging platform generally i, I imagine it, how much work goes into translating your android app to work on the amazon app store and then testing it against these really cheap tablets <laughs> that amazon puts out that aren't yeah. you know super high quality screens and hardware and processors and everything has that been a big challenge broadly supporting the amazon app store it has it has so i mean if you think yeah. of ios google play amazon kindle 
all three of those take about the same time to, to build in QA for. Um, but the impact is very much outsized towards, you know, iOS and, and Google Play right. as well. Um, so it's, it's impacted our decisions quite a bit. So, for example, uh, Sega Mini School, which launched uh, two years ago, is still not on Kindle. Um, we have not launched that product on Amazon, largely because of the effort uh, needed to, to support that Amazon platform. Um, just doesn't make sense um, for the impact. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> I know. I know a lot of parents, and my wife um, was bugging me for a while. Like, hey, the you know these tablets are just like fifty bucks. Why don't we just get all the kids these tablets? Because we have friends who who did that. And you know, personally, I'm just so iOS biased. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but it's interesting. Just it's just such an interesting platform. And I, I, we should probably like have a whole podcast just talking about the, the Amazon app store and kind of the challenges, the opportunities. I was actually talking to a developer not too long ago of a VPN app who has seen huge success. They're, they're kind of the opposite where 80% of their revenue or somewhere in that ballpark comes from the Amazon app store. And it's because people buy the fire stick, install a VPN and then to be able to to stream U.S. content from around the world, oh. and so there are like really unique little niches. Yeah, and I imagine even in, maybe in the kids app, they're probably in the kids app space. There are probably some like interesting niches that, unless you just really dive into the the Amazon App Store, you just wouldn't know, wouldn't yeah. see it, don't understand the opportunities. So. It's not that there are no opportunities there and that it's like this terrible platform. It's just got a lot of different considerations for us, you know, supporting the subscription infrastructure was mm-hmm. challenging. Yep. Um, and then, you know, from a, a programming and quality assurance standpoint, as you were sharing that it still is a, a lot of work. So it's interesting, like there, there are opportunities there, but it's, it, you really have to kind of dig around and understand that platform uniquely um, the last platform I, I did want to touch on before we wrap up was the web. Um, do y'all do any web payments? Do you have much of a presence on the web or any kind of web experience? So we do have a bit of a web experience. Um, it's not something we've, we've had a lot of success with or invested a ton in. Um, it's something that we're continuing to look at and continuing to um, try to optimize. Uh, I think where we've currently landed with it is that it's very unique to specific use cases. Um, so for example, if we do offline partnerships, if we do uh, deals like partnership deals with, you know, anything from a, a mobile carrier to a spe- specific device um, in a specific country, we'll have web pages uh, that will be the source of, you know, that's where we'll drive that traffic to have right. specific offers, um, you know, that collect their, their information, their account information at that point. And then there are specific top of funnel campaigns that we're running. Um, we do these downloadable printables um, as, as more of a lead generation tool. And so we actually have a lot of campaigns driving uh, parents to landing pages now where they can right. download those printables, these really nice branded um, you know, offline printables, get the parent familiar with the brand, with these really fun activities, uh, collect their information, uh, and then go from there and further down the funnel. Um, so there's specific use cases but I know that there are a couple kids app companies that have made the entire funnel on the web, but we just see that natural path of getting, you know, getting kids into our apps, quickly experiencing yeah. that free trial. Um, that's really the best marketing that we could ask for. Um, right. And the web detracts from getting them into that experience. 
Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So we, we do need to wrap up, but I, I, I really, I, it's going to be tough to summarize in just a couple of minutes, <laughs> but um, the last thing I really wanted to talk about, so we'll just like speed run this topic is the the innate ceiling to kids' apprehension and, and how Sago Mini thinks about that and, and works toward it. We could probably, again, talk another 30 minutes on that. Yeah. But it is another kind of huge topic within kids' apps. Is like, you know, Sago Mini targets that three to five age range. Mm-hmm. And so kids are naturally going to graduate out of that. Now, families keep having kids, so maybe you can keep a family longer. But how do you think about that innate, ceiling to retention when you're targeting a specific age range of child. Yeah, it's honestly one of the the biggest problems or quote unquote problems, but challenges that you have to think about when developing these apps um, is that, you know, your age range is really for Sega Mini World where three and four is our core demographic. And so if you think about if you acquired that user when they were four or five, their max retention is like 12 months at most. Um, So really nailing that core uh, age demographic has been been big for us, but now we're actually looking to extend that lifetime. Um, so there are a number of features that we're, we're implementing to try to remain relevant to five and six-year-olds. Um, it's not to say that we're trying to acquire five and six-year-olds, but trying to retain right. those kids that, you know, have loved Sago Mini World as a three-year-old, as a four-year-old, trying to, you know, remain relevant for them when they turn five as well. Um, so we've implemented uh, the character creator was a, a really big one. Um, having more personalization, more customization within Sego Mini World. Uh, that's been a, a major step towards uh, aging up a little bit. And then another thing to note is looking at your portfolio of apps and seeing if you can find white spaces in demographics and different use cases uh, and kind of blending that all together. So we actually have a new product called Sego Mini First Words. Uh, that's a, a speech language uh, app. And so that targets slightly younger kids getting them into the ecosystem, getting them familiar with the brand uh, is really nice as a starting point uh, with that product. And then they can age up through Sega Mini World, Sega Mini School. Uh, and then we also have sister studios at Tokoboka uh, and uh, Originator. Um, and so getting them into those experiences as well as the age out of Sega Mini, um, looking that, at that whole path holistically has been big for us. Yeah, that's fascinating. And then is Saga Mini also with the TV show, with with uh, Apple TV Plus and other products and things, are, are y'all doing any kind of physical product or any other kind of layering on products where you can expand the LTV, even though you, you, you're dealing with a shorter retention window, are you kind of kind of expanding the bundle of products where, where you can increase that LTV, even though it's a, a short window where you, you have them spending with you? Absolutely. So we have a, actually a physical subscription product. It's a make and play monthly subscription product that's sent to your door every single month. Um, so we have that offline experience that um, it's really mirroring a lot of what Sega Mini World is. So a lot of the same themes, a lot of the same play types. Uh, so again, building out uh, a lot of these different products. And as you mentioned, the, the TV show is another kind of expansion of that. Uh, so having right. within our defined target age range, having a bunch of these different touch points and products um, so kids can really immerse themselves in, in kind of our, our Sega mini ecosystem. Yeah. And I should have, I should have known this and researched this as part of uh, my prep for talking to you, but um, do you actually have um, tiers of subscriptions where you get Sega mini world 
for one price, you get Sago Mini World plus the education app for another price. Is there any kind of um, digital layering and upselling of of of, of products? Not at this point in time, but it is something that we're, we're actively looking into because it does make sense yeah. now that we've expanded this portfolio to, I believe we're at four apps within Sago Mini, four subscription oh, wow. apps. Um, now it makes a lot of sense to see if we can kind of make that, you know, cross promotion with different tiers. Yeah. Yeah. Bundle and, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, have different price points. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, it was so fun talking to you today. This is eye opening. I mean, I've, I've, you know, as I said, I've, I've talked to kids apps and, you know, at revenue cat, we work with kids apps. Um, but I haven't had the opportunity to go quite so deep in so many of these topics. And, and I've actually gotten a lot of questions that I couldn't answer that I think we answered a few and, and hopefully we'll, we can answer more over time. But as we wrap up, was there anything you wanted to share on your end? Is Psycho Mini hiring? Um, anything you want to pitch? Absolutely. We, we are hiring for a bunch of great roles uh, here in Toronto. Uh, everything from play design, developers, you name it. Uh, we're always looking for great people, um, so please reach out uh, if you're interested. Uh, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for listening. If you have a minute, please leave a review in your favorite podcast player. You can also stop by chat.subclub.com to join our private community. <laughs>